0: Hi, Chris Vallotton here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today, and if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvallotton.com. Tonight, I'm going to do something really different tonight. It may not be different for you, but we've been doing this for a lot of years, and I or Dano usually open with a foundational teaching. That's what we've done. Every single year for, I don't know, been doing this, I think we've been doing this for 14 years and over 16 years. We missed two years. And, um, but tonight, I was really praying this week. I felt really unsettled. I had prepared all the messages for the, for the week um, in the last couple of weeks. Been working on them every, every, every so often. And uh, I, I felt so, um, I think most of you will know that, that if you publicly teach, like you get a message all prepared, but you just don't feel like it's the right message. And I'm like, hmm, it's not that it's not a good message, it just doesn't feel right. And I was, woke up this morning, and I was going in, over in my spirit that message that we usually open with, which is a teaching uh, about uh, what is a prophet, and we'll obviously be teaching that. And what's the difference between the gift of prophecy and the office of a prophet? And, and uh, one of us will be doing that probably tomorrow. Uh, but I, that's what we always open with, and I really think it's a wise way to open but uh, I just didn't feel like I was supposed to do that, and I felt like the Lord uh, gave me kind of a prophetic inaugural address. So this is obviously going to be a teaching, but um, it's more than that. It's to me, it's kind of a call to action. Um, and so um, I, I, I want to just begin by saying this: that about a year ago ish. Does anyone else have to, have a problem measuring time? I don't know, is it an age thing? Like, it does probably get worse with age. Like, I'm often preaching, and I'm like, and eight years ago, and then when I get home, Kathy's like, that happened 18 years ago. <laughs> I'm like, seriously did not. So my, 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 my timer is very broken. But somewhere around uh, a year ago, I, have, I woke up to this phrase that God is raising up cultural architects. And so I just wrote it down. You know, this is kind of what I do. I, just, I wrote down the phrase cultural architects, which is maybe a phrase that's widely used in your, in your um, arena, in your area. But I, I had never heard that phrase before. doesn't mean someone coined it before me, probably. But And I just started thinking about, well, what is a cultural architect? And, um, and so I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, prophets that transform culture. And uh, many years ago, Now, Dan and I, uh, we began to equip prophets and prophets to influence their church culture. But recently, with the encounter that I had, I began to think that God is not just interested in raising up prophets who will equip people in churches. That God is actually, we sang it tonight, actually, and I, I love that song. I've heard it many times, but I did feel like it was a real prophetic unction tonight on that 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 we're here for you. That that God is moving in a a new way. I love what Christine Kane said about Isaiah, um, forty two nine. She said the verse says, um, "The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song." I had been teaching that for a couple years. She came to our church a couple about a year ago, year and a half ago probably, and she. Quoted that verse, which immediately intrigued me because I had that was a verse in my heart. I'm like, oh, the Holy Spirit's like giving this verse to lots of people. And she said this: she said, God's not doing the next thing, God's doing the new thing. If God was doing the next thing, the former thing would have something to do with what God's doing. But God's not doing the next thing, He's doing a whole new thing. And um, and of course, the rest of that says, sing to the Lord a new song. He said, "The former things that come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things. to You sing to the Lord new song." And the point that I think the prophet's making, and I do believe that it has to do with worship and music. But I think that I often think that Scripture is multidimensional. I think God is brilliant. I think that God rarely does anything with one motive. I think God's that brilliant. God can be doing. God can do one thing that actually has a thousand different effects on people. But um, I think also that "Sing to the Lord a new song" means you're going to need a new way of thinking. The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord, have a new way of thinking. You're going to need a new way of thinking for this new epoch season. And so I really believe that this is a a new, at least for us, for the prophets especially, that God is calling us to uh, a a whole new thing. And what I'm getting at, as far as emphasis goes, is that um, we, Dano and I, have... Years ago, our our rally point was to raise up apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who equipped the saints to do the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ. Did you get that part? Until we all attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure of the statute, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And it goes on like that. But the emphasis for our ministry has been, for all these years, to the building up of the body of Christ. Like the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are there to positively affect the church. And by the way, again, I do think all truth is held in tension. Are you with me? Let me just explain that for a minute. How many you know Jesus said, honor your mother and father? It's the first commandment with a promise. But three chapters later, he said, unless you hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, you can't be my disciple. I'm like, I was just getting down honor. Now I've got to go hatred. And the point is, is that the scripture are full of, if you will, truths that are intention. I love that the fact that God wrote the Bible intention. In other words, he says, do this and do this. And those are opposite. And you're like, what do I do? Because in order to actually apply the Bible, you have to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's funny. Have you ever wrote anything on your social page? And you write, let's say, honor your mother and father. And what are people writing about? Yeah. No, the Bible says unless you hate your mother and your if you write hate your mother and father, they're going to write. No, no, the Bible says, and the, and the body of Christ hasn't learned how to live intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. And we tend to polarize towards one thing or the other. So we very much believe that the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, pastor, and teacher, if, you don't, if you're unfamiliar with that With that phrase, we call that the five-fold ministry because there's five of them. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Uh, We very much believe that the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, that the ultimate role for them is to build up the body of Christ. But we've been feeling like, especially this year, as we've been interacting the last several months about this coming class, We've been feeling like the emphasis should not be building up the body of Christ, although we will be teaching about that. But it should be shifting the the mindset of culture. And I want to show you another side of the prophet tonight, that you are God's catalyst to social transformation, and I, I want to give you four things that uh, the Lord's given me over the last year. You might want to write these down. The first one I already said, that he wants to raise up cult- prophets who are cultural architects. Uh, and leaders who shape culture, inspire collective reasoning, that helps to create healthy, happy, safe, and prosperous communities for the generations to come. i want to read it one more time. Cultural architects, what are they? Probably much more than this, but leaders who shape culture and inspire collective reasoning. I'm going to talk more about that in a few minutes. That help to create healthy, happy, safe, and prosperous communities for the generations to come. The second one the Lord gave me is prophetic solutionaries. In my mind, this is Daniel. Prophetic solutionaries. Prophetic people who bring wisdom, knowledge, experience, and skill to bear on pressing and entrenched challenges in an effort to create positive change in our communities. I believe that one of the most profound things that's going to happen in the next five years is that prophets are going to be asked to come into the highest places in the land. And that they are going to, and the Lord is going to use them to solve difficult and almost impossible problems. I think that God is raising up prophetic solutionaries. And let me tell you, I'll tell you some stories that maybe tonight, but definitely this week. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is oftentimes we get invited into these places and the person is articulating the challenge or the problem. And you're, you're thinking, I have no idea. I have no clue. And sometimes I even find myself being, becoming anxious, like I got invited to this place because this person thinks I can solve their problem. They're describing the problem, and as they're describing the problem, all I feel is anxiety. I don't feel like any wisdom flowing. And I can't even tell you how many times in the last year I've been in those situations, and I have one little phrase in my mind, or maybe it's one word, and I and I like I have nothing else. And I'm like, all right, well, let's go with this. And I open my mouth, and I say whatever the phrase is, like of which is not connected to anything else, Like, I don't even know how it fits the problem. And I say, da-da-da. And then as I say it, I get another piece and another piece and another piece. And pretty soon I walk out of there and I'm like, I am brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually think that the Lord sometimes leaves us empty-minded in the midst of the challenge being articulated because he wants to remind us you didn't come in here with the answer, you came in here with the answer. Do you know what I mean? You didn't come here with the solution, you came in here with the solutioner. <laughs> that didn't go well, but that would definitely be an edit in a book. Number three, futurists, futurists prophetic visionaries who with divine foresight and inspired insights peer into the future as it was meant to be, to direct society towards their noble purpose and timeless promise. Let me read it again. Futurists, who are they? Prophetic visionaries who with divine foresight and inspired insights peer into the future as it was meant to be, to direct society towards its noble purpose and timeless promise. Basically, futurists are people who can see into the future. and Because they can see into the future, they can, if you will, skate to where the puck's going to be, I think is what they say in hockey. Like, you know, the puck's there, you're skating. How many of you know, I don't know, maybe this will offend some of you, but if you've ever duck hunted, if you shoot where the ducks are, you aren't going to get any ducks. You know how I know that? I never get any ducks. But you have to know, my wife's the hunter. Last year, she went hunting, and I bought her a gun, she went hunting. I'm sorry if you're offended by that. You know, if you eat vegetables, I'm like, lots of rabbits died so you could have a vegetable. If you don't understand that, it's because you live in this city too far from a garden to understand who dies so you can eat carrots. But my wife, Only took three shots and killed three animals. So she's a killer. So if someone breaks into our house, I wake her. I'm like, hey, baby, you might want to check that out. (laughs) She also is the fisherwoman in our family. I bought her a bass boat. I think on their maiden voyage, they they caught 57 fish. And the next week, they caught 212. Oh, yeah, she's awesome. (laughs) What do you do? Uh, Clean house something like that. On a serious note, I don't even know, how how did I even come into any of that? Futurist. Um, How did that relate at all? Oh, man, I need to know the future. Oh, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) People, you, 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 you. A futurist is somebody who actually sees the future before it happens. And creates a journey towards that future. And, um, and I think that, uh, th- that God really wants to take prophets and create a futurist mantle on them. Again, for solving hard problems. And the last one, and this one probably isn't going to make too much sense until I teach on it at some point this week. But um, Kairos conductors. Prophets who know the times and what the appropriate action act An attitude is in the times, and I believe, and this is this is going to take a lot longer to unfold at some point, but you know, there's Chronos. The Greeks have two words for time. One is Chronos; it's where we get our word chronology, as in calendar, clock, and the other is Kairos. And Chronos is what we typically live in. We live in Chronos times. We our life is on a clock and a calendar. Kind of funny that we have in the 20th and 21st century, we had broken time down into seconds and minutes, right? So now we have like, I don't know if the clock serves us or we serve the clock, but now you can do the right thing and you can have the right heart, but you can just be late. <laughs> you're late, you're always late. And so we serve this clock. And, um, but there's this other word, chronos, and chronos is what happens when divine favor meets divine opportunity. It's expressed all through the Bible. For instance, in the book of Nehemiah, it's a beautiful picture. The walls of Jerusalem were tore down for 114 years. They tried to rebuild them for 72 years. And what they couldn't do in 72 years, Nehemiah did in 52 days. And you know what's interesting? He did it with the same people they tried to rebuild it with for 72 years. What I'm getting at is he didn't bring a different crew in. He used the same crew, and how many you know, he, he stepped in to a Kairos moment, and one of the one of the symptoms of kairos moments is that is that things that took a long time suddenly happen like they suddenly happen like things suddenly happen and i, I want to tell you that I, I prophesied a couple of years ago that we're actually in a kairos moment where things that took a long time suddenly happen that divine favor meets divine opportunity. Maybe you should take that word for yourself. Maybe you've been here, uh, maybe you're you're here and you're sick and you're like, I've been sick for 15 years. I've actually just learned to live with it. And you're like, I'm living in chronos times. I I am living in the cycle of life. And then all of a sudden you step into this vortex of kairos time and things that you didn't even believe for suddenly happen. Maybe your body's suddenly healed. Maybe your son and your daughter's suddenly delivered. Maybe they're suddenly come out of their mental illness, or they suddenly come off their drug addiction, or maybe you haven't seen them. I feel like there's two people in here. You haven't seen your children for years. Like, you don't even know if they're alive, and you're like, you've given yourself to prayer. It's like, Lord, they're yours, and I, I don't even know what to do with that, and they're going to suddenly call you. And when they call you, you're going to say, that crazy prophet, he was right. <laughs> I should get his book. <laughs> but on a serious note, they're going to suddenly call you, and you're, not going to re- you're going to realize not just that they connected with you, but they connected you because you're in a vortex of God's favor and his divine power. And so I believe that God... Wants to raise up Cairo's conductors. You know what I'm using the word conductor as in a music conductor? You know, the conductor doesn't necessarily play an instrument. At least they don't need to play an instrument. They definitely don't play an instrument in their conductor position. They don't play an instrument, and, and maybe they can't even sing, but what they do is they actually understand the music, what song is being what song needs to be played, what key it needs to be in, and who needs to play next. And how many of you know everyone just blowing their trumpet, just playing their instrument, how many of you know that's not music? That's sound. And and music is sound that's conducted for beauty. And what I'm getting at is that life is often a whole bunch of sound. Everybody's playing their trumpet, playing their instrument, wrong key, different songs, and somebody steps in and goes, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh. whoa. Silence. Okay, everybody, in this key, this is the song we're playing. Ready? We're going to start with the strings. And suddenly, somebody takes charge of the times and starts to be the conductor in the room. And how many of you know that you may resent the conductor at first, but when you see the beauty of the sound, let me say it this way, when you see the beauty of the music that was once just a collaboration No, a non-collaboration of noise become a beautiful symphony. Are you with me? A beautiful symphony. In fact, the word agreement comes from the word symphonia. It means to make a symphony. Somebody steps in and says, let's come to an agreement. I love this, uh, this word in the book of Acts. It says, and having come to one mind. This is that same sense of symphony, agreement. And I believe that God is raising up people who have extreme favor. What does it take to be a conductor in this age? Extreme favor. A whole bunch of people have to all like you. Right? I love uh, what Lance Walno says about favor. He said, favor makes people want to agree with you. When you have favor on your life, people actually want to agree with you. When you, It takes that kind of favor to be a Kairos conductor. That everybody wants to play the song you think you sh- is supposed to be played. In the key you think it should be played in. And I believe that God's raising these Kairos conductors up. The Lord's taking our understanding of the prophets to another level. I see him activating prophetic people and awakening his church to become world changers. He is deploying us to bring solutions to the, greatest, the world's greatest problems. Therefore, it's encumbered upon us as prophets and prophetesses to engage culture at this deepest point of need. We must get off the bench and get in the game. Let me say that again. Like Here's this thing that's burning in me for a year. We got to get the prophets off the bench and end of the freaking game. I don't know what to do. Well, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna know on the bench. I understand that a lot of us don't get off the bench because we don't actually know what to do. And I would say, something. <laughs> Banning Leipzig preached a great message, it was really simple. He said the difference between people who do something and the people who don't is the people who do something, do something. And his point is that the difference between great people and not great people are just the people who great people just do something. Well, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? Well, if you're doing the wrong thing, it'll be wrong, and then you'll know what to not do so you can do the right thing. Very seldom do you know the whole story sitting on the bench. I got a lot more to say. It's moreover, it's paramount that we know the history of this significant office, the office of the prophet, so we understand the depths and the impact of our calling. This thing is really on me this morning. I was laying on my, on my face, and I was just thinking about the morning, this, this morning, about this evening, and I, I felt I started to see something that is so simple. You probably have seen it before. I just don't know why I did it. And I began to recall to my mind all the prophets I could name in the Bible and I, I can name a lot of them, but I don't know all of their stories, but you know, there's a, you know, we all have a few favorites. And I started thinking about the prophets, and I named in my mind, I don't know, 20 or 30 in my mind, and, I, and then I felt like the Lord said, what do they all have in common? they all have in common? And I was like, gosh, I hope this isn't like some kind of quiz to get into heaven. <laughs> <laughs> nah, <coughs> door opens up, you're in hell. I'm like, what do they all have in common? And I I know this is, I know when I tell you what I learned, you're going to say, well, of course. I couldn't think of one prophet who wasn't involved in molding culture. I couldn't think of one. Like, I I was thinking about Abraham Uh, in Genesis 20, verse 7, God uh, encounters this man, this king named Abinelik. And he has Abraham's wife because Abraham lied. And God says to Benelik, you better give his wife back. I'm going to kill you. And he goes, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up the train. Not my fault. He said it was his sister. And God says, well, you better give him back. And verse 7 says, because he's a prophet. And he will pray for you. And I will heal you. And really interesting, he does give you probably know this. He Gives Sarah back, of course, but Abraham prays for him, and God opens the wombs of his wife, who had been closed. Benelik's Abed- wife. Uh, um, uh, but my point is, is that Abraham is a father of nations. He's a, he is the foundation of, of, of many a father of many nations. He's he's a he's a businessman. He's all these things. But one thing that he definitely is is a cultural catalyst, and he's a prophet. I'm going to just share a few of these with you. Um, Moses, of course, is a prophet. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 34 says that there was no prophet like Moses in Israel. We know that Moses was the leader of a country, the founder of a nation in, in a sense. Brought the children of Israel, not founder, but brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land and became a leader. I, I love this too. I want to say this. I was talking to uh, somebody who, um, who got saved recently. Uh, older guy, and I was telling him, you know, you may think that your past has nothing to do with your future, like before you knew the Lord, that all of that's kind of like, it's all washed away your sin, of course, but I'd like to propose that what you were doing before you knew Christ, which he was a business guy, actually is preparing you for what you're called to do. And I was telling him about the story of Moses, that Moses is in Pharaoh's house for 40 years. Why does God put Moses in Pharaoh's house? I would propose because he's gonna be the leader of a nation and he was raised as a slave. How's he gonna know how to lead, right? His mom and dad are slaves. How is he gonna know how to lead a nation if he's never had any instruction? Well, God puts him in the house of the most powerful nation in the world, And I'd propose that he learn from Pharaoh, a godless man, how to lead a nation. Now, there are probably a lot of stuff he had to unlearn. But the point is that if you've never led anything before, and of course, he was put there as as an infant. But the point is, if none of your family has ever done anything but slavery, probably you got some really good teaching in Pharaoh's house. And that's before he knew God, right? He meets God 40 years later. Eighty years old, and God says, You're going to lead this nation da 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 he becomes the leader of a nation, but how many know that his his bc experience was was actually training him for his after death experience with God, right his resurrection encounter with God, the burning bush and so um, but my point is is that Moses is called a prophet. David is a king, but in Acts chapter two verse thirty it says So because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him an oath to his seat of his descendants. Uh, God swore to David that his descendants would sit on his throne forever. But it says, and being a prophet, David knew. I'm like, oh, I thought David was a king. But how many know he wasn't just a king? He was a prophet and a king. My point is is that prophets were the people who engage culture. Prophets were... We're leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Prophets were fathers to nations. Prophets were kings. And of course, there was Nathan and Gad in the days of David who were actually giving the senior prophet, the king, information about leading the kingdom. There was uh, Ezra the prophet who helped direct kings. There was Isaiah the prophet who helped direct kings. There was Daniel the prophet. Who, who ministered and directed four kings. There was Jeremiah, also directed kings. Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Hosea, Haggai, Malachi. These are all. These all have one thing in common. I couldn't find the name of anyone, and I'm sure there are some, by the way, but I couldn't find the name of any prophet who wasn't actually molding culture. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Think about it. Who were the cultural catalysts in the Old Covenant? they were all prophets. Even the kings who were molding culture in God were prophets. I'm trying to say, if society has moral issues, maybe it's because the prophets are staying in the church and they haven't engaged with their cultural (laughs) commitment. I'm saying, is it possible that morality is going to hell because the prophets only equip the saints, and they're not engaging culture as they did for 4,000 years in the old covenant. I'm saying, if you're called to be a prophet, your prophetic history is fathers and mothers who engage culture and change the mindsets of nations. I'm glad that people do, but I believe that it's a prophetic call on the life of every prophet, that you don't just train and equip people, that you engage culture, and you shift the mindsets of nations. With the history of the prophets in mind, it seems obvious to me that God has given his prophets the responsibility of awakening the church to her glorious call, and provoking the people of God to action. We must be activists, especially when it comes to morality. Immorality is dominating almost every sphere of culture. Is it possible that the responsibility of, moral, of the moral condition of society rests directly on the shoulders of the prophets have we, have, as we have forgotten our mandate, abandoned our mission, and allowed the devil to intimidate us into silence? I'm asking you as a question. This isn't the normal way we open the school of the prophets. But I think it's good. I think that we should all leave here thinking, wow, all the prophets who went before us, they all, they all shifted culture. How how about us? Think about this. Isaiah 61. This is the mandate the Lord gave me the year I got saved. I didn't know much of the Bible, and someone gave me this as a prophecy, and I didn't even know where to find it. You know, those years when you... Can't you have to look it up in the table of context to find the the book you want. And I and I, I, I read this and I'm like, wow, this is meaningful to me. And over the years it's become my my mandate. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted. He's called me to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak to release to captives and freedom to prisoners. The favorable year of the Lord. The day of vengeance of our God. To grant all those who mourn in, in Zion. Give them a garland instead of ashes. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting or heaviness. That they might be called oaks of righteousness that he may be glorified. Here's the next verse. Then they shall return. They shall raise up. They shall rebuild. I'm sorry, let me read it to this last part to get it right. Then they shall rebuild the the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations and and repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Who, Who are they? Who are the, and then they shall rebuild the ancient ruins. Who are they? They are the people who are being described as broken, mentally ill, weak, depressed, discouraged, those people, when they get the spirit of the Lord on them and they get well, once they get happy and healthy, God goes, now go back into your city and help rebuild your cities. I don't think you can be a Christian in the 21st century and not be involved in the culture of your city. Okay. I've told the story many, many, many times. But many years ago, uh, the year after I got married, I had a nervous breakdown last three and a half years. I got very demonized and I got delivered. So that's that story in a nutshell. I wrote a whole book about it. Hey, if you have something go wrong in your life and it's really bad, write a book about it. Much better to be rich and miserable than poor and miserable because at least you can go shopping. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I had... I was at the end of my nervous breakdown. I, I had come out of my nervous breakdown. I was probably out maybe a year. Still um, not, not having panic and anxiety attacks anymore, not having insomnia, but really, really rebuilding my soul. Some of you would know what I mean. Like very low confidence, um, still trying to kind of figure out what day it is, still, still learning to like myself. All of those things were still very present. So I would say I was still broken. But I was not like mentally ill or anything like that, and um, and so we had a business, and I would come home every night after work, and um, you know we kind of had that we kind of had some rhythm that we built together. Kathy and I, and, and at the time, three kids, and I would come home, and the kids were like, "Daddy, Daddy!" You know, of course, you've worked a ten-hour day, and it's like, "Ah, yeah, I'm having panic attacks again," you know, and so we kind of worked out this deal with Bill Johnson helping us, that I would come home, I would greet all the family, love on the kids, and then I'd get to go take a bath in my clawfoot bathtub for an hour while Kathy cooked dinner, and that would be my, ah, kind of like, you know what I'm saying? Kind of like decompress, detox, get a little breathing room, and then from the time I got out of the bathtub, I would take the kids for the rest of the night, and we, that was, that became our rhythm during the week. And so I, uh, and, and I think it was the bathtub because it was the only house, the room in the house that actually locked. So I don't think there was anything super spiritual about the bathroom except for none of the, none of the other rooms locked. And so I, I would do that. I'd go in, and we did that for years and years and years, probably 20 years I sat in that bathtub. And all my, I have three Bibles that from those days, and they're all, you know how steam affects your pages? Like, all my underlinings kind of looks like women's mascara when the Holy Ghost comes. <laughs> <laughs> and the pages are kind of like, you know, all. So one, one day I was in there just doing what I do. And by the way, it was never an exciting time. It was just a, It was actually more like relaxed than anything. And then I'd read my Bible and I'd pray. And, and, I, and I was doing that one, one, one day, about, again, about a year after my nervous breakdown. And the Lord walked through the wall. I've actually only had two encounters with the Lord in all my life where I actually saw him with my eyes. And this was like one, the first one. And he walked into the room, and you probably have heard this if you've heard any of my messages over the years. But the Lord walked into the room, and he began to talk to me about my divine destiny. And he stayed with me for a half an hour, so it wasn't a little quick thing. It was a a long encounter. And he began to talk to me about my future. And he said, most of the things he said to me, I never share with anybody. And I didn't share this for years. But he said to me, "I've called you to be a prophet to the nations, and you will. You, I'm gonna. You are gonna minister to mayors and prime ministers and kings, and and uh, presidents, and and you are going to. Sh- you're gonna bring the kingdom to governments, and you're gonna shift the course of history towards the king and his kingdom till the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God." And uh, he shared a whole bunch more with me, and I was stunned. Like I was. Remember, I'm still in that place where I'm trying to figure out, like. You know, I have no confidence, and the Lord's telling me I'm going to profit to nations, like a prophet to nations. And then he turns around to leave, and before he leaves, he turns back to me, and he walks over to me, and I will never forget this whole encounter, and he points right into my eyes, and I could see in his eyes the world, and he said to me, and history will tell us if you believe me. That changed my completely changed my theology. Because I, I, we were, you know, I don't know if I was taught this, but we taught prophecy back in those days. I wasn't the teacher at the time, but, and I was taught, you know, if God prophesies something, then it will happen. If it doesn't come about, then it wasn't the word of the Lord. But here's the Lord himself standing in front of me and giving this huge prophetic word, half an hour long, and then he says, history will tell us if you believe me. And I, in that, when that one moment Probably the thing I grasp most is that I had to do something about what he just said to me. Because this was his prophetic destiny for me. But if I didn't agree with it, if I didn't get involved with it, then it wasn't going to happen. And I began to realize that there was lots of prophetic words throughout all of the Bible that didn't come to pass for some of the people. For instance, God prophesied to 1.5 million people that they were going to go from Egypt to the promised land. You know how many of those people that heard the prophecy actually went from Egypt to the promised land out of 1.5 million? Two, Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else died without the fulfillment of the prophecy. Not because the prophecy was bad, because they didn't do anything about it. Are you with me? It doesn't just take prophecy, it takes a prophetic culture to transform people. And I'm saying to all of us, that there's a war over who will shape the mindset of the masses. Let me, let me say that again. There is an intense war, like I have never seen in my life, that we are in the midst of. Now, you got to understand, I'm 64. That means that I was 8 years old when JFK was shot, assassinated, and I watched it live on TV. I watched live that Bobby... Kennedy being shot on TV. I watched Martin Luther King being shot on TV. You understand, I've seen some conflict in my lifetime. I was born during the Vietnam War. I was the first, the, the first group of people who, who did not get drafted. They stopped the draft in 1973. I was born, I mean, my birthday was January 1973, would have been when I was going to Vietnam, and that's the year they stopped the draft. I'm saying I was born when we were afraid the Russians were gonna drop an atomic bomb on us. We used to have alarms go off every month and we would practice hiding underneath our desks as if that was gonna do anything for a freaking atomic bomb. I never thought of it at the time, Like, yes, we'll want to know where there was a human being. When we, (laughs) I just realized now it's like, this is so that when we, When we put you in the urn, we'll know what desk you are at. I'm simply trying to point out that when I say that this is the most conflict I've ever seen in the history in my history, that's saying a lot. I was there for the civil rights movement. I was there for the Black Panther movement. It was in my school. We had the police out every day. These police shootings that you see in schools, I predate those. We had cops out. We had shootings on our school campus. I've seen a lot. And I have never seen the turmoil that I've seen in America in the last five years. Never seen it. And some of the older folks I see shaking their head like they, 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 they say the same thing. And I'm saying, there's a war, but this war isn't going to be fought with bombs and guns. It's going to be fought with thoughts. There is a thought war. There is a war over who will shape culture. People are like, the media is shaping culture. The media isn't shaping culture. It's the media, it's the mindset... <laughs> There is something behind the media that's much bigger than media, that is shaping culture. You see, you know, what's going on with President Trump. I'm not promoting President Trump or not demoting President Trump. I'm simply saying that, that every day it's an impeachment. It's this thing. It's that thing. And it's, it's like, it, it, was, it was the same towards the end of Obama's uh, presidency. It's like, it just doesn't stop. It's just every day. I just don't even turn the radio on most days. It's the same story with different names. And we're in a huge war right now. And the challenge is, is that some of us don't even realize we're in a battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I want, to, I want to show you something. Are you bored? Okay. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers. Everybody say rulers. rulers. Okay, you know the rest of that. Against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness. Against, world, uh, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Okay. I, I, I want to point out something. Did you notice that it's world forces of wickedness in heavenly places? Okay, if you haven't heard this term, there are no demons in God's heaven. So, Genesis 1 says, God, he created the heavens and the earth. We call that the first heaven. There's no phrase in the Bible, first heaven. We call that the first heaven to describe what I'm about to describe to you. The first heaven is the visible kingdom, what you see right here, what you can touch. And then we just read that there are demonic forces, In it says, in. Sp- in heavenly places. I'd propose there's no demons in God's heaven. They were cast out of heaven. Then Paul said in First uh, in Corinthians that he knew a man, I'm sorry, uh, yes, he knew a man who went to the third heaven and he saw things that were indescribable. I propose that's God's heaven. Are you following me? Okay, now, when you received Jesus Christ, you were seated where? In heavenly places, but it's really important that you know which one. Because you were seated in heavenly places with Christ. Far above what? All principalities and powers and every name that was ever named. Both in this age and the one to come. Why is that important? Because when Jesus died on the cross... Well, first of all, let me back up. For Some of you are kind of new to these concepts, so sorry if you're bored. But God, Genesis 1... God gave authority over the earth to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Are you with me? So God, uh, the psalmist wrote this, the heavens, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth has been given to the sons of men. So God's in charge, but he's not in control. Who's in control? Man. Okay, got me? Now, when, and then God planted two trees in the garden. Do you realize God planted those two trees? You realize the devil talked Adam into eating the wrong tree, but how me understand God planted the wrong tree and the right tree. I got very quiet here. You're like, oh. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about why, I mean, the devil got blamed for Adam eating it, but why did God plant it? if he didn't want Adam to eat it. And I'd propose because the only way you can get credit for doing the right thing is have the opportunity to do the wrong one. Christians typically cut down the second tree and call it sanctification and God calls it control. You didn't even hear that. I'm saying God didn't child proof the garden on purpose because love requires choice. See, God could, he could take away rape, molestation, murder, just name an evil sin. And you're like, if God is love, then why doesn't he take away these things if God is so loving? Precisely because he's loving, he doesn't take away those things because love requires a choice. God could have programmed you to like him, but you can't program anything, anybody to love somebody. It takes choice. That's what love means. I choose you. Not I have to. I choose you. Why did God put the devil on the same planet he put you on? I mean, why did he put him on Mars or someplace Elon Musk can't reach? <laughs> Mars might be nice, it'll be a devil-free planet. That might be a good place for us to all colonize. Have you ever thought, like, why did God put, are you, you guys, always looking at me. <laughs> I have to tell you, I feel a little anxiety up here. Why did God put the, the devil on the same planet he put you on? Well, first of all, let me say this. He did not put the devil on the planet to torment you. He put you on the planet to torment him. Yeah. Are, you, are you with me? Yeah. And secondly, the reason why God put the devil on the same planet he put you on is because God wants you to be able to choose a god. And if there's no God of this world, how many know you only have one choice? So now you have to choose God by love because you have another choice. But here, here's the, where I was going. So when Adam disobeyed God, which is the way we usually teach it, probably the most profound thing he did wasn't just disobey God. He obeyed the devil. The devil said, eat the tree. God said, don't eat the tree. And how many know God put Adam over the planet? So when Adam obeyed the devil and disobeyed God, he changed masters. Why is that important? Because the devil became the ruler of the earth when it was supposed to be Adam who ruled the earth. When Jesus met Satan in Luke 4 in the wilderness... The devil, of course, said several things to him, but he said, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, for they have been handed over to me. Who handed them over to him? Adam. So why did God have to come as a man to earth? Because the son of God had to become the son of man so that sons of men could become sons of God. God had to come as a man because God made a covenant with man to rule the earth. So he had to win back rulership as a man, not as God. Are you with me? So when Jesus rose from the dead, and in Matthew 28, I think the statement's 100 times more profound than we think. When he says to his disciples, he gathers them all up, and he gives them the, we call it, great commission, right? All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, who gave him all authority? The devil gave back his authority because Jesus won it on the cross. Ultimately, God gave him authority. Now, how many understand the devil has no authority? He has power, but no authority. The Greek word for authority, I think something like dudamos, it probably is something like... (laughs) Some of you are like, you didn't pronounce that Greek word right. Have you ever heard anyone who can read Greek? It's like. <laughs> My name in Greek is. <laughs> <laughs> but the word power in the Greek is something like the word deutamus. We get our word dynamite from it. So how many know that God told, I'm sorry, Jesus told the disciples, I give you power, deutamus, over all the power of the evil one. So the devil has power, but you have more power. But the, the Lord said in, in um, Matthew 28, all authority, the word exousia, has been given to me. That means the devil has a th- power, but no authority. Uh, think about it like the, a sheriff. He comes to your house or he, he enters a, a bad situation. He has a gun, he has deutimus, but he also has... The badge, he has exousia. Are you with me? The devil has no authority to use his power unless you deputize him. Which humans do all the time. One of the best ways to deputize the devil is to be bitter with another human. Whenever you hate a human, the devil has pow- gets to use his power against them because you just gave him authority to do what he has no authority to do. So, okay, now let's go back. It says, so we have the third heaven, the second heaven where the demonic realm lives, and the first heaven. The second heaven has power over the first heaven. But the third heaven has power over both heavens. If we as believers, how many understand that you're seated in Redding, California, and you're also seated in heavenly places we read in Ephesians chapter one. How many understand that you are simultaneously, this is your vacation home, this is your residence. Yeah. If you live from Earth towards heaven, then how many know you're always living in reaction to what the second heaven's doing, because the first heaven has power over the second heaven. I'm sorry, the second heaven has power over the first heaven. But if you live from heaven towards Earth, now who's the cultural architect? See, the challenge is, if you vacate your heavenly position, then what got defeated gets re-engaged. And what was, what is, what was commissioned to rule actually is ruled. Not because God gave the devil authority, because he took it away, but because you did. Are you with me? Okay, so now, in Ephesians, it says, uh, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, and he names four spiritual uh, princes. And by the way, I don't think Paul was talking about demons. I think he was talking about principalities. How many understand there's a big difference between a demon and a principality? I, don't think, world, I think world changers are often resisted by world forces of darkness, not by demons. And here he says, but against rulers. Interesting, this word, rulers, are you bored? Am I going too long? I can't tell. I preach forever. I know I got to zero, so however long that was. <laughs> the word ruler is actually the Greek word, it's the Greek word, origin, origin. Now, let me give you an example where it's used, Philippians 4:15. Uh, Paul writes to the Philippians, he writes, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at my first preaching of the gospel, the two words, first preaching, are actually the one Greek word, origin. You're like, what what are you talking about, Belton? I'm saying that there's a spirit that is actually, his name is origin. And how many understand that spirits are named by the influence they have on humans? When Jesus cast out the deaf and dumb spirit... The boy could speak and hear. Why? Because he was influenced by a spirit that was named Deaf and Dumb. I'm saying in the demonic realm, spirits are named by the influence they have over humans. Are you with me? So when this, so when your Bible says that there's a prince called Origin, it's because of the influence that prince has on culture. I'm talking about your you are called to shape culture, but you're in a war with someone else's shaping culture. This particular spirit is called origin. What does that what does that spirit do? Paul said, at my first preaching, Paul was said, Paul was talking to Philippians and he's saying, When I came and I laid the foundations of the gospel called first preaching. Are you with me? I shared to you the foundations of the gospel, the origins of the beginnings of the gospel. How many understand that there's somebody else called origin that is also redefining? the origins of God. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, this spirit says, um, are you really creating the image of God? Maybe you're an evolutionized ape. Maybe you're an amoeba that evolutionized into a human over a billion years. I'm saying this spirit takes things that are completely irrational and makes them feel rational because they are not coming from the mind, they're coming from a spirit that is redefining the origins that God set in place. <laughs> Isn't it funny that you take things that seem ridiculous and add a billion years and they seem totally logical. <laughs> like two Volkswagens collide and a Corvette drives out. Like how did that happen? What happened over a billion years? Oh, oh. Have you ever thought, like, you take a ridiculous concept, add a billion years to it, and you think, oh, that makes perfect sense to me. It's a billion years. Oh, yeah. Sorry. How about this one? How about this one? Origin. Are you sure it's a baby? Maybe it's a fetus. We used to ask people, is it a boy or a girl? Now we have to ask people, it's human. How about this one? Oh, no, I'm going to offend some people tonight. I can feel it. I'm probably going to stay up for at least three minutes (laughs) worrying about this. Are you sure you're a boy? Maybe you're a girl. I know you have a penis on you. Your DNA is male. But maybe... You are actually a female. You know why that seems really logical? And you know why it has the backing now of our Supreme Court and our entire society thinks that something as crazy as that, something that if any, any other generation in history thought that, you would think the entire culture was mentally ill? Do you know why it seems totally logical to people and they want to stand up and defend the mentally ill? Because Origin has convinced them that something as ridiculous as your sex is determined by how you feel. I'd like to propose that there is no bottom to that. There is no bottom to that. As soon as you define your values by how you feel, there is no bottom to that. You're finding that already, it's gonna get lower before it gets better if the prophets don't get involved in culture. Uh, I'm almost done. Can you give me 10 minutes? Turn to Matthew 25. I'll probably just quote this to you because I know this is a very popular passage. This is probably just a very short time ago, a few months ago. In my normal devotional time, I'm reading through the book of Matthew, and you know how this happens. Passages that you've read thousands of times, suddenly they're a speed bump. It's like you suddenly see it. It's like being in a room that you've been in your whole life, and you look up in the corner, and there's something there you never saw before. It's like that. And I'm reading this Matthew 25. And this is where it's, let me read you some of the verses. Verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, come and, and to, and I'm sorry, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. And he goes on to say, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, da 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 And you did some stuff to prove it. And then he says to the other ones, depart from me. Uh, And he goes on to tell them, I was hungry, you didn't feed me, and so on and so forth. And they will answer and say, uh, and and, and he will answer and say, truly I say to you that to the extent that you did it for the least of these, you will do it for me and those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this is very confusing to me, and this is part, of, in my mind, this is like the big picture of cultural molding cultures and mindsets. I was, I was reading this passage, this is not very long ago, a month or two ago, and I'm like, this is, I, suddenly I'm like, whoa, this is strange. Is it, you know, I, I can, I, it's logical to me why every single human will stand before God someday and give an answer for their life. Uh, especially for people that have spent their life serving God and maybe didn't get much reward. Or people who did completely evil like the guy who killed all these people recently. I'm like, it makes total sense. Judge day makes total sense to me. Great and terrible. Good for some people, terrible for others. But this passage says, not only will I be judged personally, but I will also be judged collectively. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. In other words, God's gonna take a group of people and he's gonna say, you guys are goats, you guys are sheep, and he is going to judge me with a group of other people. And the other other day, I was like, I read that, and I'm like, that doesn't seem fair. (laughs) Like, what if I'm a sheep in a goat nation and I'm on the wrong side of the freaking aisle? I'm like, what if God goes, depart from me, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, I'm over here with the goats, but I'm a sheep. I mean, have you ever read that passage? Has has anyone ever read that passage, and it it totally throws you? Has anyone else in here? Like three of us. I know. I read that passage, and I have read it for years. I'm like, oh, of course. And then I think, well, what if I'm on the wrong side? What if I'm with the goats and I'm over here behind and the Lord don't hear me and then I thought like doesn't that seem unfair I mean does it not seem unfair that the Lord would judge us as a group and I said to the Lord that's unfair I said to him out loud that doesn't seem fair and then I, I had this thought there can't be corporate judgments without collective reasoning and there can't be collective reasoning without collective responsibility. And God wouldn't hold me accountable for something he didn't equip me to influence. Then I started like, oh no. <laughs> Therefore, we are responsible for the mindset of nations because we're called to influence the way they think. And I'd like to propose to you that in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, when the Israelites, for instance, had a, a king who loved God, it says they all served the Lord. I don't even know if we get where I'm going. They all serve the Lord. One guy's relationship influenced the way everybody thought. And then they maybe 20, 30, 50 years later, they get a bad king. And it says, and all of Israel went after Baal. One guy's lack of relationship with God changed collective reasoning to not walk with God. And I'm, wait a second, there is no way I'm gonna be judged with goats. If I'm a sheep, unless I actually had the ability, the anointing, and the calling to change the way the goats think so that they become sheep. Okay, um, if there's national judgments, okay, follow me, this is going to be, I'm almost done, good. If there are national judgments, then there has to be national responsibility for the mindsets of a nation. If God is going to judge me for the mindsets of a crowd, then crowds must think collectively. If there are national judgments, it tells me that I am responsible for the way the crowd thinks. And I will be judged for how the crowd thinks. Um, I will be judged for how the crowd thinks. How the crowd thinks. (laughs) I don't know. Therefore... We do have collective intelligence and mindsets in which people think by the same consensus. In other words, we think as a group more than we want to, more than we want to believe. How many know we all want to fit in and we all want to stand out? And that thing that we have, the need to actually be connected, also causes us to think as a group. (laughs) Think about it. Think about it and the night is long. Think about it. When something comes into style, we all want to buy it. Right now we have holy jeans for like 10 years. Like you go buy brand new pants and you rip holes in them. That's if you don't have the money to pay the extra money for people already ripping holes in them for you. Holy jeans tell you how much we want to fit in how badly it means, how much it means to us to not stand out. All of us stand in front of a mirror for a half an hour to an hour and a half. Some of you could use some more mirror time. Everybody in this room spent at least a half an hour in front of the mirror. Well, I'm like, I don't care what people think about me. You care so much, you spend the whole morning getting ready to see people that you don't care what they think. And there's a few of you who obviously don't. My point is, is that God would not collectively judge us if we didn't have the power and the authority to shift the way an entire nation thinks. I'm saying the reason why God judges us collectively is because it just takes one person to be a catalyst to the way people think. Are you with me? And I'm saying that God has put it on the prophets for 5000 years before us. And those prophets were the catalysts. They were the catalysts for who buys holy Levi's, metaphorically. They determine what was cool, what was in, who should be served, who should not be served. What the people did was oftentimes determined by one person. People say things that that is not true. They're like, you know, if the church should just get along, we would change the world. God's not waiting for us to get along. He's not president of presidents. This isn't a democracy. God's king of kings. He's just looking for one person. God don't need a crowd. He doesn't need 3,000 or 5,000 or a million people on D.C. to turn the world around. He just needs one person. He just needs somebody that will step out of the crowd and go, I'll be the conductor. And God goes, I will give you favor and the whole crowd will follow you. And people will begin to think like you because I've anointed you to lead the crowd. I'm telling you, I am so convinced that the world, I might not be convinced tomorrow, but right now, (laughs) the only thing that seems true to me is that the prophet's lack of engaging culture is taking us morally down the wrong road. And I'm a very positive guy. Like, I think that the world has a future and a hope. But I think the future and the hope of the world is God engaging his prophets to awaken his church and his people and the world to the fact that he wants to mold culture and he wants to be the most important man in the room and i think in the absence of in the absence of molding culture we have begun to reflect culture so that we can actually relate to culture. Because we are not in charge, we follow culture trying to not make anybody mad so that we can at least have a conversation with culture. And we say things like, well, I don't want to say homosexuality is a sin because I don't want to offend those people, and I don't want to say that transgenderism is a mental illness because I don't want to offend those people. I'm like, what what do you want to say? Because how many understand that the only way to receive mercy... And people say all the time, like, sinners need mercy. Of course, we all know that. Well, right? We were all sinners. And when we sin, we still want mercy, do we not? But the only way to receive mercy is to admit you're wrong. The challenge is that if we teach people that things that are common are normal. If we normalize sin... We take away the ability for grace and mercy to reach people. That is not called mercy. We actually leave people in their sin because we just said that what you did is not sin. Therefore, you can't call for mercy and receive grace, which is the only way out of sin. So as soon as we redefine your sin as normal, as soon as we normalize sin, how many know the difference between common and normal? Cancer is common, but it's not normal. As soon as we normalize sin, how many understand that we just took away that person's ability to actually get out of it? We just said, you are stuck in your sin for the rest of your life. You'll never get out. And people who say, I was born this way. Yes, we were all born into sin. But how many know the good news is, is that no one's stuck there. Whether you're an alcoholic, whether you're an adulterer, whether you're a pornographer, whether you're a homosexual, whether just name any famous sin or infamous sin, how many understand? Don't tell me you're stuck there because Jesus can change anyone. Yeah. Anyone. That's our message. Nothing's impossible with God. I'm saying this is our message. I don't know why we're running away from it. I dealt with the two ladies who were anorexic. I, I, I'd known people, but I'd never counseled them. And I remember the very first lady. She was, uh, she was in her 20s, beautiful gal. And she should have weighed about 120 pounds. And she weighed about 75, 65 to 70 pounds. She was skin and bones. And I had never actually engaged anyone in conversation to help them out. And so I was doing what you would probably do. I have no experience in this area, so I'm asking questions like, you know, what's the problem? And, why? and then she said, I'm just fat. And she swore, swore that she was overweight. She could stand in a mirror completely naked, skin and bones, look like those kids that you see that we inspire the giving of, of money to feed them, worse than that and swear she's fat. And when the second one came in uh, a year or so later, I asked her the same question, I'm like, so how many know that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free? The word truth there is the word reality. A lot of people live a virtual reality. Feels real, looks real, tastes real, ain't real. And I, I left the first meeting thinking, the power of lies is so profound in the life of people that they will swear they're fat when they're skinny. So telling her that she's agreeing with her being fat is her death sentence. It's not it's not being kind. It's not being unoffensive. It is her death sentence to agree that she is fat. Agreeing with sin is not kindness. When well, people get offended, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I understand we have to be graceful no matter where people are caught. I understand we have to be kind. I understand the church hasn't been kind. But to react instead of respond to our lack of kindness, to react and like, okay, everyone's normal. That's not kindness. That's not wisdom. That's dumb. And it's, what it's caused is a whole culture to go the wrong direction. Well, we're like, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to tell anybody. You know, we don't. You know, and, and we're standing by totally frozen because of the response of some people when you would try to engage culture and say, that's not the Lord's way. And by the way, the Lord can heal you. He can change you. He can transform you. That's the business we're in. Nobody can be identified by sin because God identifies you as a son, as a daughter. I'm, 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 I'm finished. I just want to say that I believe Jesus is the hope of nations, and I believe that you're the hope that the nations are hoping for. And we're going to talk about really cool stuff all week long, but I felt like I was to inspire you, to challenge you. You must engage culture. You have to get in the fight. Like, it is encumbered on you as prophets and prophetesses to engage culture at the deepest points. And I want to show you over the next days, which you'll be hearing all week long, and the Holy Spirit's going to be talking to you. Like, this is how cultures were transformed all through the Bible. It wasn't the kings who changed culture. It was the prophets. Some of the prophets were kings, but it was the prophets who changed culture. Malachi 4 says in the last days I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. What's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. Did you notice that even family issues are changed by a prophet coming? That's you. That's what you're going to do. Amen. Would you stand? We need wisdom. I know just by the amount of people that are in this room that some people, some of you in this room, will be stu- struggling with some of the things i talked about, pornography, homosexuality, all, all these things. I know just we're in culture. It's just impossible. I share this every year in school ministry, not this message, of course, but we talk about these issues. And I can tell you that our our revival group pastors that day, they, they said a third of my A third of my class is struggling with these very issues, and some of them were offended. And I'm like, I'm I'm very sorry that they're offended. But the, the uh, the opposite of I mean, I, I I I'm sorry that they're offended, but I'm not sorry I offended them. Because the other side is to remain silent, and we can I can prove to you that remaining silent has not worked. It has not worked. And so, and some of us have children that are struggling with these issues. I get emails, uh, face, mostly Facebook, private messages, nearly every day about somebody's son or daughter who's, who's gay or who's struggling with this, this whole thing and, and engaging culture on that level. I, I, I just think we need to be really, really compassionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to really be compassionate and i understand that just sharing that there's a problem sometimes feels incompassionate but i'd propose that sharing sharing the challenge and reminding people that god can change anybody is not a lack of compassion yeah. and you know the and another challenge i want to say is that w- when we engage culture we are not responsible for people's response i can't determine your response i'm not in you now i can can really make it hard for you to respond well by the way I deliver? Of course. But the kindness delivery makes some people angry because they're fighting with shame and guilt. And we all know what that's like because we've all dealt with that shame thing. So I feel like I'm supposed to pray for you tonight, and I believe that the Lord wants to release the sword, the commissioning to... Actually, be cultural transformers and cultural architects. And so, Lord, I just release this the word of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, on every single person in here in Jesus' name. That Lord, that you would give us courage and wisdom and understanding on what where we should place ourselves in culture so that we can be the conductor, the catalyst, the futurist that will help shape culture. And Lord, give us the courage of the Old Testament prophets who were able to speak even to kings and and change their minds. And Lord, teach us how we can influence collective reasoning so that we can take goats and turn them into sheep, because that's what you do, God. You take goats, and you turn them into sheep. And I thank you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog, or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvellton.com. Have an awesome day.